Hello, I'm Mariette Smeyman. Welcome to Calm, Clear and Helpful, a weekly podcast series on taking good care of yourself and others. Today's topic is COVID grief and grieving. How brain working recursive therapy can help. My guest is Rafik Lockhart, clinical psychologist and director founder of BWRT South Africa from Cape Town. Hello Rafik. Hello Marie, it's nice I'm to so see you. I'm so glad you're here. I know, it's nice to see you again. Yes. It's been, uh, been a while. Yeah, it's been some time since we recorded that general podcast on That's BWRT. True. Yeah, and in the meantime, we've had many podcasts on the different applications. Just for our listeners, after our conversation, Rafik will give us his three best tips for grieving, and then it will be fun question time. Rafik, what has been your experience in this time of the COVID pandemic regarding death and grieving? Right, so you know, I've always had an interest in death and grieving. When I, I worked at a place called Lentechia Hospital in ooh, 1989, and I was fortunate enough to work with an expert at the time, George Savage, and he had an interest in grief. I didn't know much about it then, but I worked in the unit, and he, he was a grief expert, and he, he spent like a lot of time doing grief therapy. So like I learned a lot about grief and how, how tough it was. And he'd, he'd run grief wards, so we had a ward full of grief patients. That's really how my interest in grief started, because up to then, I think like in many of the courses we've done in university, it may have been like a, a peripheral thing, you know? Yeah. And then when I, when I, when I worked at Atlantic here with George Savage, I then realized how integral a part of, of life grief is. And I, and I think that it's, the reality is that almost every one of us is going to have to lose a loved one at some point. That's the one thing I've come to in the 30 years I'm working. It's almost a guaranteed that at some point one of us is going to lose a loved one. We need a way to handle that. It's, it's, I mean, there's no way you're not going to have to deal with that. So I, I've discovered that grief and grieving is quite an important part of everyday life. And uh, I'm of the firm belief that there's an app in our brain that's been downloaded when we're born uh, to help us deal, deal with this. I know it sounds a bit weird, but, I, but I, I think it's kind of like when a baby's born. You know, a baby's never seen a mother's breast before. You take it out, you put it on, on the chest, and it finds a way to the nipple. It knows exactly what to do. Never been taught that because it's been indoors for nine months and it's also been fed through the umbilical cord. So how does it know? But but it, it does. It gives the same baby a pencil. It's got no clue what to do with the pencil, but it knows what to do with the nipple. And I've always thought that was very interesting. How oh, weird? Because there's an app. I think there's a survival app downloaded. So I also think that there's a grief app in our brain, and and this has been written about by somebody called Kubler Roche, quite famous. Everybody studies those stages. And uh, there's been some discussion about how it fits in different cultures, but more or less I think it's accepted that there is those stages. And so in, in theory, when you lose a loved one, the, the grief app is supposed to kick in. As, I, as I've come to understand it, it's meant to kick in. Now, of course, it doesn't kick in for, for like a random loss. So like a sort of a colleague or friend you sort of knew, but like a loved one. So I think when it's a, a loved one that you love 
and you lose them, or like a loved pet, same thing. So anything that you love like that, um, then this grief app kicks in. And I've come to understand her stages a little bit differently. So I, I see it as when you get the bad news that somebody that, that you love has passed away, there's like a fuse that blows in your brain. Now, it can be seen as a bad thing. I see it as a good thing. Because the, the reason that you have a fuse in a house is to let the fuse blow here so that the main board doesn't blow up. Because if there's no fuse, then the whole thing will blow. And I think the same thing happens in our brain, that we immediately get wrapped in cotton. So our, our brain just makes us, we're going to shock. That's the term we use. But really the feeling is this, everybody who's been there will know there's a cold, numb feeling that you get. And that cold, numb feeling is, I think, a protection from having, like the, the electricity go straight into the main brain, the main blocks, and blow it up. Right, so there's a time, everything just goes numb. I remember this when my brother died, I'll talk about him a bit later. But everything just goes numb, and you just get that cold, numb feeling, which we call shock. And I think that's the brain being wrapped in cotton wool immediately, okay, to give you a chance to really slowly process what's happening. Because you see it move, people just have a heart attack. So oh, so-and-so died, <laughs> poof, dead. And that's not really what, what we want, okay. Then from there, you go into the next stage in a little while. And uh, that is where you start to have to do things. So you go to organize a funeral, you go to call people, you could make arrangements, and, and most people describe that as they're on autopilot. Okay, so now the, the, the tightly wrapped cotton wool is loosening a little, but then you get to the next safety point where you have to do stuff but without feeling it intensely because there's just requirements. Things must be done. Things have to happen. If, if you're in charge of a funeral, you're going to organize it, you're going to make the phone calls, do the arrangements. And so people often describe the feeling of, I was doing it, but it was autopilot. And again, I don't see that as a bad thing anymore. I see it as, well, that's a necessary process, because you need to be doing times. And if you're busy collapsing from your intense grief, then who's going to do the stuff? Okay, so, so you go through the next phase, where you, like you're starting to do things, but it's in autopilot. And you'll do many things. But it almost feels like you're not there, like you're watching it happening. Then you start to get to the third stage, which is what I then call this the, 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 the feeling stage. And I've found that there are three main big feelings. So feeling one is anger, feeling two is sadness, and feeling three is in guilt. Now, the anger is not planned. We just get angry. We feel anger towards everyone. If if there's doctors involved, we're angry with them. If there's an accident, we're angry with the driver. We're just angry. We're angry. Sometimes we get angry with God if we believe in God, and then that becomes a bit scary to be angry with God. But it's normal. So I just want people to understand that the anger that one feels, plus, and they're also angry with the person. I mean, my, my, my brother died a month before my wedding, and I said to him, well, in my head, such bad timing. Couldn't you have got your timing right? You know, couldn't you wait a little? And, you know, so that, that's a normal thing to feel, but the anger is important. Then the next feeling, which and I'll, I'll talk about this now, is just sadness. You just feel sad because there's a hole in your heart, the person's gone. And then the third important one is what, what we call the if-only syndrome, and that's where the guilt comes from. I mean, all of us, there's no way you won't have it. 
But we all say things like, oh, if only I'd been a better son, if only I'd been a better brother, if only I'd spent more time, if only I had, if only, and, and, there, and there'll be like a million if onlys. And that, that's where the guilt comes from. Now, those three, let's call it three, three main box of feelings, they, they interact. And they're different. So even in one family, if, if there are three siblings and a parent died, okay, how people grieve will be very different, depending on their personality and the kind of relationship that they had with the deceased person. Okay, so no, no three kids have exactly the same relationship with, let's say, their, their dad. Right, personality, type of relationship will then determine, so some will have more anger and less guilt, Others will have more sadness and more guilt. Others will have less guilt, more anger. And often I, f I find people compare their grief. And that should never happen. Never happen. Also, people think that you have to cry. It's compulsory. I've seen people put eye drops and, and like pepper in their eyes at funerals. And I thought, okay. But, I, you know, I've, I've understood why. Because, because their grief's different. But if everybody's bawling their eyes out and you're the only one that's not, then you start to think, well, what's wrong with me? And people are going to look at me and wonder why you're not crying. And I just want to reassure people listening that everybody grieves in their own way. There isn't a standard way. You'll, you'll feel stuff. Some people feel it and show it. Other people feel it and don't show it. And that's okay. But I have, it's been quite funny seeing people put pepper in their eyes at a funeral so their eyes look like they've been crying. And I, and I understand why, because they don't want to feel like people are looking at them funny and saying, don't you feel any love for your dad? And we, we seem to then attach that to how much you cry. And that's not true. We grieve in our own way. Uh, but we will get to that stage. So the stage one is the first one, like the shock, the next one is that autopilot stage, and I'm giving them like the simple names. And then the third one is the feeling stage. And these are roughly the three big feelings that one would have. And it's different for everyone. The amount of anger, the amount of guilt, and the amount of sadness varies from person to person. Again, based on your personality and based on the relationship you had. And that can take a while to work through. And then so... I'll just do like the normal, normal thing first. And then from there you kind of moved into acceptance. Where you then accept, well, look, at least in this life that you're not going to be with the person again. And then that's, that's kind of where, where the stages stop. But I found that there's one more stage that one must take into account, and I call that readjustment. Now, what does it mean? So readjustment basically means now you have to adjust to life without the deceased person. And often that's not spoken about. So it's, it's like you get to acceptance, you're done with grief. But actually you're not. Because now there's life without the person. And that can be incredibly challenging. Um, particularly, let's say, a small example, stereotypically, if, if you were the wife and your husband took care of all the bills and this and paid everything, and, and then suddenly he's gone and you have no clue about anything, it's... It's a big problem because now you have to run a household and, and maybe you didn't do that before. And maybe you didn't know how to pay bills and maybe you don't know what the rates are. And maybe you don't know any of the other stuff. And so that, that can cause quite a, a, 
a massive shock and more anger because now you have to deal with things that you're not trained to deal with and suddenly, and you have no choice because it's dumped on you. It's just dumped on you. You're right there, you have to do it and you don't know how to do it. Um, so the, 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 the readjustment phase is quite important, I think. So that, that's what's meant to happen normally if your grief app kicks in. Then we get to complicated grief. So the complicated grief basically means we get stuck in a stage. Okay, for many reasons we get stuck. And COVID has caused, in my experience, more complicated griefs than I've ever seen. Firstly, firstly, there's more death than I've ever seen now. I mean, yes, we're used to death, but oh, it's, it's, it's just relentless these days. And as everybody is now saying, it's moved from someone to someone you know. I don't think anybody now in South Africa, even worldwide perhaps, doesn't know somebody close that's died of grief. I mean, sorry, that, that, that has died of COVID. It's not possible. It's, now it's people that you know, even within your own family, almost everyone's lost. Now the problem is that our brain doesn't like having unfinished business. It's just not designed for that. I mean, a small thing, you're on the phone, you, you're watching your favorite TV program, and the doorbell rings. You're like, you know, or the phone rings. It's your really good friend. But somehow your brain just, why must they call now? I'm just busy with this now. And it's, it's, we feel bad, because it's not like you don't like your friend, but, but your brain is focused on, you know, your very exciting part in your soapy, and then your buddy calls out of the blue. It sounds funny, really it does, but it's a small example of how our brain gets irritated by these, these it's because it's interrupting. Now, in general, grieving, we, in general, we are able, you know, to then uh, say goodbye to the person, we make our peace with them, and we either see them at the hospital, wherever, like COVID's just wiped all that out. That's just gone. I, I don't think there's been a time in our history here this country certainly, where we've had funerals like this, where people die alone in hospital, and you're unable to be with them, and you're unable to hold their hand, and you're unable to kiss them goodbye. So yes, video, WhatsApp video call has been very helpful. That's, that's really helped a lot, but where you can see the person. But often, often you might know there's people who have COVID then kind of go into sort of like a coma state, which means at best, the nurse can uh, hold your cell phone and the doctor can show you the person. But that's sometimes even more traumatizing because the one thing I've found that people find over the years very traumatizing, it's very odd, but it's the last memory of pipes inside their loved one. I've found that quite an interesting thing. If I ask people, so what, what's your worst memory of, of your, like your dad dying? And they're saying the hospital with pipes. Somehow that, that memory just sticks in your brain and you just see all the pipes and you hear the machines going. So, so COVID has, I suppose, robbed people of the, the, the last, call it peaceful departure where you can hold their hand if you pray, pray for them, or just be with them. And that's stopped. You, know, you can't go to hospital, you can't be with the person, they're alone, they're dying by themselves. And it's been, I think, very traumatic for, for many people um, who wait to sit outside in the car. And then the doctor calls and says, I'm sorry to say, but, you know, like, like your dad's passed on. 
or uh, they say, look, the person's on their way out, but, but we can't let you into the hospital. And, you know, they're not being mean, they're just following the protocols, and that, I think worldwide it's been like that. But what it's meant is that our brain hasn't had a way to fill in that gap now. So the last time you spoke to your loved one was maybe like a week ago. And whereas before you could go to hospital, you know, just to sit there with them. Even if they're in a coma, you could still hang out, sit with them, hold their hand, stroke their hair, play with their hair, whatever. That's gone, done. So they are, the way I see it, people are dying without any kind of closure now. And then, of course, funerals weren't allowed for a little while. So now what? Okay, so you don't see your loved one dying in the hospital, you don't get to say goodbye, and then you can't go to the funeral either. If you do go to the funeral, only I think like a small amount at first was five and then ten, and then it became fifty. But you know, so okay, so all of that I think has led to these complicated griefs where, in simple terms, it's unfinished business. So our brain has an, an open file about your loved one passing away and it can't close by itself. So it's very hard to get to the acceptance phase. You're forced into the readjustment stage where you must get on with life without the person, but, but you're kind of stuck at another stage. So that, that, that's where therapy... And, and and all therapies, I suppose, are designed to help you to get to acceptance. BWRT, if we're going to talk about that, just gets you there a lot quicker. And I know people have spoken about, and they say, yeah, but shouldn't, shouldn't grieving be like a, uh, like a painful process, and, you know, and there's growth through suffering? So I think I said this to you before, I no longer believe that. I think suffering is just suffering. Okay, so when somebody comes for BWRT therapy for grief, first there's some work to be done. So you need to explain to the person that uh, the aim of the therapy is to take away the intense pain and change it to normal sadness. So we are still human beings, we're not robots. We can't make you feel nothing. That would be unnatural. But when, when you've got a complicated grief, or even a very intense grief, it's painful. It's, it's the pain is intense. And sometimes that pain can last for a very long time. So what BWRT does in one or two sessions is it takes you from intense pain okay, to normal sadness. And with normal sadness, you don't, uh, one doesn't need treatment because it's normal. And normal sadness slowly just gets less and less and less and less with time. But it, it's that intense pain that could last for a long time. And that kind of intense pain then stops you doing many other things. It particularly can affect your relationships with those around you uh, because you kind of are so locked in the intensity of your pain and your grief that you completely forget that there are other people who need you. Not on purpose. I don't want to make that point. People don't do the stuff on purpose. You know, it's like, a, like often if, if a family lose a child, I have found years later when I see adults, they'll say to me, you know, when my brother died, my mother just, you know, she disappeared. She, was, she went into a grieving state and she wasn't there for me. And I'm in therapy now because I missed out on all of that. And so again, I don't think parents do it on purpose. You just don't realize what's happening. You're shutting down. 
that you're stuck in a particular place, you, maybe you're stuck in the anger phase, because you're angry that, that you've lost your child, but then you've forgotten that you have two other children. And those two children, they don't understand why suddenly they don't, they don't count anymore, or why they don't matter anymore. And again, it's not on purpose, it's just a process that happens. So that's why grief therapy is important, because in the readjustment phase, there are other people who still need you. And if we're grieving to that extent, that we've shut ourselves off and shut ourselves down, then everybody else suffers. Okay, so that's why I don't no longer believe in like, there must be a long grieving process. Because in that time, you know, that there are what I'd call other casualties. So there's collateral damage, other people... Uh, start to suffer because of your grief. So, so at, at yeah. what stage can somebody come to you? Right. So that, that's a question that's asked very commonly when I do the training. And, and that, that's a very individual thing. So I, I generally won't do it immediately. I'd kind of wait till the funeral's done because then it's, we've done with that. And, but there are colleagues, you know, who've, who've worked like within a day or two um, because that then helps people, you know, to sort things out a lot better. Personally, it's it's very it's it's a very personal thing. So each therapist must make up their own mind about when is the right time. But what we don't want is to wait a year, because by then, you know, maybe all kinds of other damage has happened, uh, like relationship-wise. So so generally, I I would see somebody after the funeral's done, and. Okay, so people are sometimes afraid of therapy because they think therapy is going to erase the memory of their loved one. And it's an important point because that's not true. So when you're in that intense, painful stage, your brain, as I see it, is unable to access all the good memories because the pain of the loss simply just doesn't give you access to all the good stuff because, there are, you know, there are good memories. But it's blocked by the pain. And every time you think about the death, the pain of the loss just stops you going there. Okay, so the aim of, of BWRT grief therapy is two things. One is to take the pain away, but importantly, okay, to replace it with normal sadness for which you don't need therapy and for which that will diminish with time. Because normal sadness we can handle. Intense pain is hard. Number one. Number two, at the end of a successful BWRT grief therapy session, you'll be able to access all the good memories. Which means you'll start saying, oh yeah, I do remember, that was fun, remember that time. And then you'd find it easier to talk to other people, other loved ones, about the person that's just died. And then you start reminiscing without pain. Ah, oh, remember that picnic when you fell into the river and remember that time when dad, whatever. Whereas, if you're still in that intense pain part, you can't take part in that conversation, you just walk away. You're like, no, I'm not, I'm, I'm going for a walk. You just withdraw. Because talking about that, firstly, you don't feel the warmth of the memory. All you feel is the pain of the loss. And sometimes you get angry because it looks like other people have moved on and, you know, why are you still stuck in... And, how can they talk about dad and laugh like that? Like, I, and then the disloyalty issues come in. Like, you know, you 
it's very complex, but you know, like you laughing, and how can you be talking about that fun thing? We just lost our dad. So those kinds of things in complicated relationships between other people who get angry with you because why are you still, let's call it like morose, and you know, uh, we're just trying to get on with our life, and yes, dad's gone, but we're getting on with life, and you think, but you're disloyal, you know, how, how much could you have loved dad if you're laughing about it now? All right, so all of these things are normal things that do happen, and they, they're not stuff that's generally spoken about, but they exist, and they cause complications. That's not even getting to the fights about the will. I mean, let's not even get to that part, right? And that's why I do say to people, please make out your will properly, because it leads to endless, endless, and then the, the death of the person then creates more problems because now there's fights about the world. That's another topic, but that happens. So, you know, who was the favorite and why are you getting this? And then there's no world, let's just say. Then people start fighting about, well, I want that. That fur coat was promised to me. Mommy said, I must get it. No, she didn't. I'm sure anybody listening has been through this or has heard of these kinds of things. Unfortunately, they can cause lifelong conflict. You know, you took mommy's emerald ring that mommy always said, I must get that thing. You took it. How dare you? But mommy told me I can have it. But So, and it sounds odd to talk about business, but the, the will, if it's neatly put out, generally solves all those problems. And if, you know, you didn't get what you didn't get for whatever reason, then you sort it out with the dead person in your own thoughts with them. But at, at least, you know, that like siblings aren't fighting or relatives aren't fighting. That, that's just like a side topic, but that complicates the readjustment phase. It also complicates the anger phase because uh, pe people do fight about possessions and inheritance. That's just a fact. They fight about it during divorce. You don't think they'll fight about it when, when the death happens. So that's important. Um, so the, the, the aim of the therapy is, is then to, to give you back the good memories which your brain is unable to access while you're in the intense, intense pain phase. So people mustn't be afraid that we're going to wipe out their loved one. In fact, we're going to give their loved one back in a memory way. So all the good memory, you can start now laughing about it, start talking about it, start remembering. All the good times you had, almost like, like a, a treasure chest, as opposed to just this deep loss. The, the, the only thing that does happen post-therapy, and, and, and again, we, we, we tell our patients this, that you have something called an anniversary reaction. Now, an anniversary reaction is where, on whatever occasion was special for you and, and the dead person, your loved one, whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, Mother's Day, Father's Day, anything that was special, so on those days, because your brain works on patterns, it will look for the person more on that day. And the person's not there. So on that day, uh, your sadness will be heightened for a little while. But if you've had successful therapy, your brain will then come go back. But just, it's not a relapse. People think, oh, I'm relapsing. I say, no, 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 no. But th this is your anniversary. It's your first anniversary without your husband. So... On this day, you're going to miss him more, as an example. Or like on, on you know, like, like it's the first Easter, without the first Christmas, or first Eid, or first Diwali. So on that particular day, your brain looks for the person, because there's a standard pattern that you've always had. And as we know from BWRT, that our brain works on patterns.
And so, if there's Christmas lunch and you're sitting there and the chair is empty, Dad's not there, your brain then goes, oh, oh, that, that's, oh. And then you feel sad for that particular day, but you won't get stuck. Now, when people don't deal with the grief and they're in a complicated state, and I know this because I didn't initially deal with my brother's passing away. When he died from colon cancer at 34, um, I just figured out, well, you know, I'm fine. I'm, I'm a psychologist. I'll get through this. But <laughs> that's what I do. That's not what I am as a person. I'm still hurt and bleed like everybody else. But I just carried on. But it was very painful, and I'd cry about him. Or people would say, "Hey, listen, your brother's passed away. You know, uh, or like your brother had cancer. Is he okay?" And I'd say, "No, he died." And I just burst out crying. People go, "Oh, well, I'm so sorry." I did. People get awkward. If you burst out crying, they're not sure. Firstly, they feel bad that they started it, and secondly, not sure what to do. And they just kind of dragged on until I thought, "Okay, this is going on too long. I, I need to go and get this thing sorted out now." Um, and when that happened was because a year later it was Eid, and of course he wasn't there for this Eid, and the last Eid he was. So that's, that's when it usually hits people who haven't dealt with grief, that on a particular anniversary, birthday, um, Mother's Day, Father's Day, anything that was special, Valentine's Day, on that day is where your brain will then discover that the person, if you've been in the denial point, and then you get hit and then you have a breakdown. And that's okay. It, it just means, okay, it's time to go and get sorted. It's not a terrible thing. It just means, fine, I tried. My own didn't work. Still sore. Need to get some help. And then, and then you do. And BWRT is not a long, drawn-out process, fortunately, thankfully. Is that um, with successful therapy, we, we, we can take you through those stages in one or two sessions mostly. And people think that's so fast. But remember, there's time and then there's brain time. And we work in the brain. And the brain can make all kinds of amazing things happen. And usually at the end of a succession, people feel a sense of closure. They feel a sense of peace. There'll still be sadness. I don't want people to think, oh, I'm done. I'll feel nothing. No, you're going to feel sadness like any normal person that's lost a loved one or a loved pet, any of those things but not to the extent that you're paralyzed by the pain, and not to the extent that you can't function. And you will function, but you'll be sad. But sadness gets less and less and less with time. That's when they say time heals, that's true. But time doesn't heal. So it's kind of like, like if, you, if you got injured, then you're bleeding, and you just stick a plaster on. You think, okay, cool, it's done. Right? Because you can't see it, it's here. Meantime, that's going to turn septic because A, you didn't clean it and uh, you just stuck a plaster. So at some point, that thing is going to get really septic. But if you clean the wound properly, and if you put the Dettol on, and that burns a little bit, as always, and, and it's the same therapy, it burns a bit, you put it on, you put a proper plaster, then time will heal. So it's not true that time heals everything. Time can't heal an uncleaned wound it will just become septic and cause more problems. But time can certainly heal if you've had proper therapy for the grief. Time will heal it. Then the sadness gets less and less, and then just every birthday it goes up a bit, 
and then it's back down again less and less and then maybe on a special religious holiday goes up a bit and then it goes down again and then that will just get less and less and that, that's really how the BWRT therapy for a, a grieving situation would, uh, would then work. I'm wondering if you see people who have lost pets because yes. you know sometimes other people don't realize how close people can be to their pets. No, pets in people's lives are very important. I think people just think, oh, it's just a pet. But I, I had a lassie collie for 17 years from age 13 to past 30. When that dog died, it was really, it was like, like I'd lost a member of my family. I remember my, my, my mother was in tears for weeks afterwards. So it is it's true that people get very attached to their pets. And when a pet dies, it is like losing a member of the family. So one mustn't minimize the loss of a pet as if it's not. I mean, I'm, in, in therapy, I'm shocked. Shock's the wrong word, but I'm, I'm constantly surprised by when I take people's histories, how that there's a loss of a pet somewhere that was very traumatic. Ah, that reminds me. Okay, so talking about that. So sometimes death can be traumatic. Uh, the way that you discover the person. So like a car accident, I often have patients who've gotten out of a car accident and then they found their, their loved one in a mangled state. Or uh, like sometimes happens, you come home and then you find your loved one hanging from the ceiling. They've committed suicide. So suicide's complicated because often, you know, you don't understand what happened. Like an accident, you, there's some cognitive sense it was an accident, a heart attack, cancer, COVID, uh, suicide. Sometimes if there's no note, that can cause you a lot of confusion and anger and like, I don't understand what happened here. How can this person do that? So that, 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 that can complicate the grief sometimes, but the, but the BWRT has a way to help you get through that. So the traumatic nature of how what you discover can sometimes lead to what we, what we call post-traumatic stress. You keep reliving it. So how the brain works with BWRT in this model is that our brain just downloads stuff. Just on a, on a daily basis, it downloads everything. But generally, life is generally boring, so it downloads routine stuff. So if I said to you, uh, Mariette, do you remember what you had for lunch on Sunday, March 15th? You're going to go, what? <laughs> You're mad. But let's say you had food poisoning that day. You'll say, oh, gee, I remember that. Oh, that was, I was crawling on my hands and knees. I was vomiting. I was in such pain. Right, because, so now, now you'd remember that because it's, in your brain terms, a special memory. And then the brain has this other system where the worst memories get a priority. So for some, some, I'm not going to go into that now, but your brain, not just yours, all ours, will wire to the worst memory first. And so if there was, if, if, if you discovered your loved one has died in a, in a, in a like very traumatic way, so a gunshot, car accident, hanging, wrist cut, whatever it is, okay, your brain just downloads that as a memory. But unfortunately, because it's a bad memory, it then gets a priority and it gets turned into like a YouTube video and then your brain plays it back. So you're sitting watching a movie and then suddenly there's a suicide scene. You didn't see this coming, you know, you're just watching a movie and then suddenly your brain goes, 
hey, I've seen that before, and it, it finds your own file, presses play, and then your whole memory pops up, and then you get kind of like a whole traumatic thing. So um, not everybody dies peacefully. That's the ideal, but not everybody does. Um, some people die very traumatically. Now, BWRT can help fix that as well, in in the same session, generally. So it doesn't matter how traumatic the death was, the therapy will take care of that in your brain. There's ways to make that better so that you don't keep being haunted by the bad memory of you came home and there was your loved one hanging from the rafters. I mean, you can imagine that. That just gets stuck into your brain, you know, and can't get out. So really, grief, I've discovered, can hold you back from many things. It's almost like you're holding balls underwater. It takes a lot of effort. Um, like, you can do it. You can hold the balls. But now think about all the energy it takes to hold a ball under the water and what you could be doing with the energy if you weren't holding the, we call it the grief ball under water. The problem is that ball will pop to the surface on an anniversary. We call it an anniversary reaction, but it could be any day that's special. So it's, I think that that's a good way to understand the kind of energy that it takes to hold a grief down. Uh, takes all your energy, really, to keep that at bay. And then avoidance kicks in. You start avoiding functions. You start avoiding places that remind you of the person. You start avoiding, avoiding, avoiding. And then, even more important, you don't want to see other people happy. It, I know it sounds weird, and you're not a mean person, but, but you don't, if you've lost your wife or husband, you don't want to see other husbands and wives hugging and kissing. If you lost a baby, the last thing you want is to talk to someone and say, oh, look at my new baby, and hug and kiss, and you're like, no. I mean, you, you try to be gracious. But I think, I, I just want listeners to know that none of this is done on purpose. So you're not a mean, malicious person. It's just your brain doesn't want to be triggered. So if you've just lost a baby, the last thing you want is to hear how happy somebody else is that they've got a baby. Like You don't want to go to places where people are pushing prams. I'm stereotyping. There are there like exceptions, of course. But you know, you lost a loved one. The last thing you want to go to is a wedding. Because everybody's talking about life together, love together. So. A grief doesn't just kind of stop, as I see it, one thing. It stops many things. Um, like your system just shuts down. So would it be fair to say, Rafik, that you get normal grief and then you get complicated grief and sometimes there is post-traumatic stress disorder involved? Yeah, depending on how the person has passed away. Yes, but, but whichever BWRT can be of use... Yes. And if someone thinks that they are suffering more than they would like and it's maybe making them less functional or it has some other bad consequences, then they can find a practitioner sure. and they can be sure that they will not be required to come for six months of therapy mm, because no. I think especially with financial constraints, people are, are wary of that. Yeah. I think, I think that BWRT has really freed me as a psychologist and my other colleagues you know, to do quick work and to do good work uh, that's almost permanent in its, its resolution. And so even normal grief is still painful. And with, with BWRT, we can make the normal grief go quicker also. Again, 
So it, 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 it's not being disrespectful to your loved one because you're recovering quickly. What it's being is that it's helping you to grieve quicker so you can get on with life quicker. And those who are then need you and depend on you don't suffer the consequences of not having you emotionally available. So initially the BWRT grief therapy was designed for complicated grief. Over the years, I've discovered that in fact it works equally well for normal grief because it lessens the, the length of pain. And I've come to believe that pain is just pain. I don't believe that they grow through suffering anymore. So even for normal grief that just feels like it's going on too long, or normal grief that's just feeling really intensely painful, BWRD can, can help you move from that point to normal sadness, so you can get to the readjustment stage quicker without in any way being disloyal or disrespectful to your loved one. Because some people do have that thing. They have it in their head that they should suffer for a long time as a sign of how much they love the person who passed on. And while I can understand it, I think it's completely unnecessary and it's a misunderstanding of in, in of course, in the meantime, there's all this collateral damage going on around you, other kids, other siblings, whatever. So, yeah. And can you explain where the BWRT can be done online? So, it's, it actually works fantastically well for online uh, because of how BWRT is. So, there were some colleagues doing it online, even before lockdown. But I think, you know, like most of us used to like face-to-face. -face. And then, then lockdown happened, and we all had to innovate. And, uh, oh, well, you know, technology is just amazing. There's Zoom, there's Skype, there's WhatsApp, video call. And because of how, because BWRT works in the brain, all we just need is be able to see the person. So, for example, me, I only do online therapy now. I'm finding it really hard to go back to face-to-face -to -face because my patients love it because they work from home, so they, there's no traveling. And we've discovered that the therapy actually works perfectly well for online. In fact, you can even do it on the phone without seeing the person. That's the other thing we discovered. You don't even need to see the person. So, online first, like, like seeing the person, but if for whatever reason that's not happening, then, then you can do a... Most of us have done like phone calls. I've done... And other colleagues as well uh, have done perfectly good BWRT sessions without seeing the person. We just to get them to talk to us, tell us what we need. works well. So, you know, technology, innovation, and BWRT is all gone really well. And where can people get more information about BWRT? So there's uh, www.bwrtsa.co.za, that's the South African one. Then there's bwrt.org. And that's for the international. And just Google up BWRT. It's it's simple now. It's and it's 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 a well recognized therapy. So in South Africa, I have trained now about one thousand five hundred psychologists, and 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 eighteen psychiatrists. So psychiatrists are coming on to learn because it helps them to uh, those who have an interest in therapy and. Many of the psychiatrists that have done the therapy have found that they're either reducing their medication their patients are on, or they're modifying it. And uh, 
And that's a nice thing to see. So, yeah, when we started out, maybe just 10 or 15, and now six years later, about 1,500 psychologists. I mean, South Africa, worldwide, many more, obviously. And now for your three best tips for grieving, please. Okay, so I think firstly understand that if I'm right, that there's an app in your brain that will kick in the moment you lose a loved one. Uh, the second tip is that to understand that grief is normal, but it can get stuck. Thirdly, okay, you'll know you're getting stuck when the pain is too intense. Okay, so tip number one is when the pain feels too much, go and get help. Don't be like me, I dragged on my brother's grief for over a year. I mean, it's interesting, so... so I got married, and, and this kind of connects to the tip. So I got married a month after my brother died, and my only sibling. And my wife would have told me like a year later, she says, you know, this past year has been very rough for me. So I said, I don't understand. What do you mean? She said, well, you're just not available. She said, emotionally, you said you disappeared. I had no idea. I thought I'm being a wonderful husband to my new bride. According to her, I was actually, no. And she said, even worse... I couldn't come and tell you about it because, I mean, how? You just lost your brother. How can I come and complain about your emotional and, and physical unavailability? I had to keep quiet because that would make me like, what? You know, you just lost your only sibling. And so that, that helped me a lot. That was 2004. And I, I began to understand from that experience about just as a personal level how grief shuts you down. I didn't know I was shut down. I thought I'm doing perfectly okay. She came to say, actually, like a year later, like you disappeared. You just weren't here for this past year. And I was shocked. I was very grateful she told me this. Um, but it helped me to understand how, how grief can just make everything shut down. So tip number two, that rather than shut down and have all this other loved ones around you not be able to interact with you or you not interact with them, go and get help for that. And tip number three, of course, is that uh, the most important thing is BWRT won't take away, won't wipe out the memories. That's a fear people have. It's true. I got to say it to them, won't take it, won't wipe out your memory. It will give you back your loved ones' memories in a way that feels warm rather than painful. Thank you, Rafik. And now, on a lighter note, it's time for your fun question. Oh, okay. I'm waiting. Now we're going to the realm of the imagination. Okay. Which wild animal do you think would make a really good psychotherapist? Hmm. A lassie collie. I have to say that. <laughs> <laughs> From first-hand experience. From first-hand experience. A lassie collie because they're warm, they, uh, they, they're easily connected dogs, they're very intelligent dogs, and they're intuitive. I know... All, all, all dogs are, but, but the, I think that last, I've had other dogs besides collies. But uh, a Lassie collie, I think just in terms of its warmth, its connection, its, its uh, uh, intuitive connection, and its intelligence. Thank you. That, would, that, that will be a good therapist. Yeah. Thank you for your time and your expertise. Oh, as always. It's, been, it's so nice talking to you again. We haven't done this for a while. Yes. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with someone you care about.
If you'd like a more fulfilling relationship with your beloved, if you wish parenting could be easier, or if you're interested in upping your emotional well-being, you're welcome to visit my website, mariettesneyman.co.za, for free articles and podcast episodes. Calm, Clear and Helpful is compiled, hosted and edited by me, and the music is by Mart-Marie Sneyman. Catch you next Tuesday at 9.